Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I am your host, Jen Fry, from the Organization of Nature Evolutionaries. And I'd like to welcome you to our Becoming a Nature Evolutionary series, where we delve deeply into what it means to be a nature evolutionary through dynamic explorations into consciousness raising that is at the core of one's vision of a world where people and nature are co-creative partners and all life has the right to thrive. Thank you to our members and donors for making possible today's teleseminar, Water Stories, The Incredible Possibilities for Restoration and Regeneration with Zach Weiss. Zach is the founder of Elemental Ecosystems, which specializes in water retention landscapes that harvest rain to create naturally productive ecosystems working in harmony with the earth. Through Elemental Ecosystems, Zach has worked in more than 25 different countries on six continents, spanning a wide range of climates, contexts, landforms, and ecosystems. Recently, he created an online educational platform called Water Stories to bring these approaches and techniques to the public in order to revive the health of our planet. And you can learn more about this at waterstories.com. Zach, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you, you for having me here. It's a pleasure, pleasure to, speak to speak with you all. So how about we begin, um, could you introduce us to the water cycle? Yeah, the water cycle, you know, we all learn about it in school, but we mostly learn about the large water cycle, water moving from the ocean through the Earth's continents and then draining back to the ocean. But the full water cycle is actually much more complicated than this. We have the sun evaporating water off of the oceans, that water vapor drifting inland. But in order for that water vapor to actually condense and form droplets, clouds, and then rain, it needs a precipitation nuclei to form around. So this is a little speck of something. It's oftentimes actually microorganisms produced through ecosystems. Uh, it can also be salt crystals and it can also be ice crystals but for most of the world it is these microscopic organisms so around these microorganisms the water condenses and in that phase change from a vapor to a liquid there's a huge change in pressure and volume and so it creates this vacuum actually drawing in more moisture from the coast uh, then as that water enters, falls onto cool shaded earth, it's able to infiltrate rapidly into the ground, feeding springs, creeks, and reservoirs throughout the year. And so in this way, we have a really balanced, stable climate. Additionally, the vegetative systems are actually transpiring that water, cooling the air 590 calories per gram of water that they transpire. And so the vegetative systems are actually a key part in this water cycle, both for sheltering, shading, and cooling the earth, but also for actually creating more water within the atmosphere and then creating the precipitation nuclei that allow that water to condense and fall as rain. Uh, Jen, I think you're on mute there. Thank you. So um, thanks, Zach. So clearly, uh, vegetation is very key ingredient in the water cycle. Yeah, it, you could almost say it's the one of the biggest ones. Uh, around 50% of the precipitation we receive is from water transpired by vegetation locally. 
And then somewhere between 50 to 80% of our precipitation is driven by these microorganisms produced within the stomatal cavity of leaves. So when you start losing these vegetative systems, you also lose a balanced water cycle. Now you don't have as much water being moved into the atmosphere. You don't have the cool temperatures that are drawing in that humidity from the coast. And now you make these high pressure heat domes that actually keep the water away, building the pressure of these systems till they become these very strong destructive systems. And so this is what I call the watershed death spiral, the situation that we as humans have created on this planet, which is a cycle of flood, drought, and fire due to our mismanagement of both the vegetative systems and the water systems on land. Great. Well, kind of. <laughs> um, so uh, several years ago, I was talking with our director, Alicia, who um, is, you know, she's a little water obsessed. She's a double Pisces. Um, but she said something to me that really stuck. And it was that we're not really in a climate change crisis. It's really about a water crisis and a water imbalance. Could you, do you agree? Could you expand on that? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, you know, when you look at all of the different issues that are being correlated to climate change, they're actually water issues at the stress, at the root of it. Even something like temperature rising, when you lose this evaporative cooling that's happening by vegetation, you actually, now the water vapor that would have fallen and allowed the heat to dissipate into the night sky is now forming a humid haze over the earth. So it's holding in that water, or sorry, holding in that heat overnight. Um, and when you look at all the main issues that are being attributed to climate change, flood, drought, fire, these are all water issues at their core. Uh, and so I really feel as though the modern environmental movement has actually hitched our cart to the wrong horse. It's all about carbon. It's all carbon centered. And when you're working with carbon, we don't even know if the results are positive for 10, 20, 50 years. And so the people implementing the solutions have no feedback loop, have no response. And with the immense buffering impact of the ocean, we really don't even know if it's working for a huge amount of time. Whereas when we turn our attention to water, we see that very quickly we can achieve results. After the first rainy season, we see the impacts of our actions. And in just you know, a span of a decade, we can restore whole watersheds when this is really done on a big scale. And so you look at some of these really successful projects, like uh, one in India with Rajendra Singh, the waterman of India, one of the features of one of our films, Reviving Rivers, and they've actually lowered the temperature two degrees Celsius. They haven't done anything carbon-centered. It has all been water-centered. So by creating decentralized water retention by increasing the vegetative cover of the earth, they've actually already offset our anticipated warming from CO2-driven climate change. Um, so I really view this as this immense beacon of hope that whereas the carbon narrative is so disempowering and we can't really do anything about it, or we can take these tiny little steps, but there's still these huge businesses that are driving the main factors when we turn the conversation to water, there's immediately things that we all can do, both for our land, for our families, for our communities, and then also for the landscape and climate at large when we start to expand these actions to a bigger scale. 
Yeah, that was my um, my take too. When Alicia said that was just like, oh, to me, because when we talk about climate, it's huge. And it's also hard to like put your finger on it. I can get with um, I can get with carbon because I'm a plant person and soil. So I can, you know, get with all of that, but still it just feels so um, much larger scope than I have any connection to. But when, when it became about water, it felt manageable to me and it felt like something that we, we can work with. And of course our bodies are mostly water. So it's just, it just feels much more, um, I don't know, much more possible. I think much more possible and also more foundational to human quality of life. If you think humans will be able to survive on a planet that's a few degrees warmer, we will not survive on a planet without fresh, clean water. There are already water wars being fought. And a lot of these refugee crises, immigration crises are actually driven by water scarcity. And so we're already seeing the impacts of this watershed death spiral. And it's also something we can really do actionable pieces on you know the project i mentioned in india this is one of the poorest regions and the driest region of india yet these people were able to revive seven rivers to perennial flow they were able to bring water back to 250,000 wells doing projects that were almost unresourced in terms of their economics and really just by communities taking stewardship of their land and acting collectively to create a better common future. Um, so you mentioned earlier this term decentralized water retention. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, it's really a matter of holding water in as many different places in the earth as possible. So when you look at what humans have done to the watershed over the last 10,000 years, we've desertified one third of the planet. And how we've done that is with immense drainage systems. Everything that we build on the landscape, every home, every road comes along with a drainage system. And not just that, we've taken most of the wetlands and turned them into arable lands by once again draining them. So we're moving the water very quickly through the system, trying to get it away. And so what we're trying to do with decentralized water retention is hold it in as many different places on the earth as possible. And so if you just use the term water retention, you could think that these giant dams and reservoirs are a good thing, which they are in fact not. They're breaking the natural cycles of these rivers and waterways. But when we start to make our actions decentralized instead of centralized, they become much more effective and efficient. If you think any centralized system has all these inefficiencies in collecting the water and transporting it. And if you look at these big dams and reservoirs, they're basically draining watersheds to the giant reservoirs and then piping it way downstream to wherever the civilization is. It services the people and then gets piped further downstream. So we're mainlining water out of the system. When we're looking at decentralized water retention, we're trying to hold it in as many different places as possible. So instead of large centralized reservoirs. We're trying to create small earthen features all throughout the landscape. And not just in water bodies, but also in terraces, in forestry systems, in soil systems. These are all part of this decentralized retention of water. Great. Thank you. Uh, so one of your teachers is, um, or I guess, big mentors and teachers is Sepp Holzer. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about his work? 
Yeah, Sepp Holzer, known as the rebel farmer or the agro rebel, he's an Austrian mountain farmer. He, at a young age, inherited his family's farm, which was really way high up in the mountains. It's in the coldest part of Austria, what they call the Siberia of Austria. And it was really thought to be unproductive land. According to the nation, it's really just useful for some grains, maybe a little bit of grazing for cattle or forestry, but you're not supposed to be able to do anything but those. And on this land, because he had really grown up loving nature, grown up learning from nature. As a kid, he had little gardens all over the place. He was raising salamanders that he sold in school. And so he always had this deep connection to the land. And he saw how human agricultural systems were not in harmony with nature. They were really seeking to control nature and almost domineer nature in a way. And so when he took over control of the farm, he started implementing all of his childhood dreams. And the people in town thought he was crazy. You know, they told his father, you're going to lose the farm. Don't let your son do all these things. But over time, he developed what some people call the Garden of Eden on Earth. And you go there and it's just incredible. It's 72 interconnected ponds and water bodies. There's an immense amount of productivity for wildlife. And it's also a very productive commercial farm as well. So they have all sorts of farm animals. They have all sorts of tree crops. And from the beginning to the end of the year, essentially, there's food falling on the ground that they're actually doing very little work to cultivate. And it's because they're giving up a bit of control in order to let nature take control, let nature take the driver's seat, and then figure out what yields they can get off of those ecosystems. Um, so this farm became quite well known and Little by little, he started having more and more projects around the world. He did a big project in Spain where all of the trees were dying, the landscape was desertifying, and there he created this wonderful network of water bodies. Now, everyone said this was impossible. This is in the Extremadura, almost desert. Yet he was able to find ways just with the earthen materials on site to take those seasonal flows of water infiltrate them into the ground, rehydrate the ground. And now this is the largest ecological point of interest in Europe. There is an immense amount of wildlife. The cork oaks are now coming back and really thriving. And so it was all from this stress of water. And he just kept doing these projects around the world, more and more bigger and bigger, and really turning deserts into a form of paradise. I love it. Um, I mean, one, it's so hopeful because, you know, when I was growing up and learning, um, we were always told, like, you know, once you hit, once you become a desert, that's just it. There's no, there's no life, which, first of all, we know that that's not true. Um, but it's just great to know that we um, we can work with the land to bring it back to where um, the land wants to be. And, and in fact, that's one of the things I heard him say in one of your videos is that um, hum actions humans can take to revitalize the landscape. So um, changing our roles as partners. It's wonderful. Yeah. And I think we're in this position where we're really normalizing chronic illness. We're normalizing chronic illness in ourselves and in the landscape. If you think, you know, someone a bit younger like myself, I've had to seek out healthy environments. Most of the environments that we see, they've been logged several times. They've been drained. They've had drainage systems put in. 
And so they've been heavily desertified before we've even experienced them. So I think it's really important that we don't normalize this chronic illness, that we start to understand what things were so that we can also understand what they can be in the future. That's a really good point. Thank you for that. Um, And it's hard because like you said, this is what we grew up in. And so even our so-called wild areas, like there's a really special magic spot around us. That's what I call it, my magic spot, because at this time of year, it's wildflowers. It's a wildflower preserve. And you just go and it's not like, oh, here's one trout lily or here's one bluebell. It's a whole hillsides are covered in bluebells and covered in Dutchman's breeches. And it's so beautiful. And I was there the other week and I, I just started crying because I realized that like what I was experiencing then is magic. That was once this whole area where I live and it wasn't just this one little area. And even then the, the beautiful trees that are there that are quite old were nothing compared to before the colonists came here. So it's, it is even like our wild areas. It's hard to remember that even that is not really how they would like to be. Absolutely. And I think of the valley that I'm in right now, the Gallatin Valley in Montana, this used to be two thirds wetlands. The whole entire valley was two thirds wetland. It was a sacred valley of the indigenous people that would come here. There was to be no war in the valley because all of the tribes around here claimed it as their own because they would come here to harvest medicines that grew nowhere else. Now you look at it and it's an agrochemical industrial wasteland. And it's hard to imagine that you know, there's less than one third of those wetlands remaining. And so you really have to hunt and dig to see what the ecosystems used to be in order to understand what we've lost. So one of the things you talk about is water's potential. So can you um, expand on that? What is the potential tapping into the water's potential? Yeah, when you think water is just this incredible regulator, you know, somewhere between 70 to 95% of the heat dynamics on earth are driven by water. Water has this immense ability to store heat. And it also at these phase changes, both captures and releases an incredible amount of heat. So when we look at the heat dynamics on earth, it's just somewhere from four to 20% of those that are actually driven by carbon the vast majority are driven by water Uh, and all life is water. You know, you look at ourselves, yes, we're 70% water by volume, but if you look molecularly, we're actually more than 99 out of 100 molecules of water and the water molecule, it holds so much potential without it, there is no life. And so it really dictates the quantity, the quality and the location of life on land. So when we bring water back to an ecosystem, to a landscape, it causes these ripple effects throughout the whole landscape. Time and time again, you know, everything needs drinking water. So if you can create year-round water in a place that otherwise goes dry, all of the insects are using that water, the birds, the animals. Now you're creating a reservoir for life on that landscape just by holding the rain and setting that landscape up to receive the rain rather than reject it. Yes, I heard you talk um, somewhere else about enhancing the water cycle and something that we can do as humans. Um, So I'm I'm getting it. It's like, you know, holding the rain, (laughs) keeping it there Um, and guessing also planting vegetation. 
Yeah, vegetation has a huge impact on the water cycle. That temperature of the earth is very important in terms of how it can receive water. If you think of a dry, hot sponge, you pour water on it and it all just runs off, barely any absorbs. Whereas if that sponge is cool and slightly moist already, it can just soak up that rain fully. And so when we have these landscapes that are bare fallow, that are just devoid of vegetation, we're heating up that earth. Now we're also, interestingly enough, increasing the earth's potential to hold and re-radiate heat. So the more the earth heats up, the more it can heat up to the fourth power as well. So it's this very strong heat impact. But then as we use vegetation to cool that earth, again, we get that infiltration happening. We get more vegetation throughout the year. We have photosynthesis happening year round instead of the narrow periods after the rains. And then we're starting to get that vegetative cooling happening. And so this is really how life formed on land. You know, it, it started out as this barren rock that then through a symbiosis of bacteria, fungi, and algae started forming the first soils, the pedogenesis that then created the habitat for the vegetation to take hold. And that vegetation is really our life source on earth. Can't tell you how many times after the fact, people connect the forests and their water supplies. It's really hard for people to connect that beforehand, but once they clear the forests and all the water sources go dry, they realize, oh, the forests actually had an impact on our water supplies. So we need to work on really making that connection beforehand in order to have those water sources moving forward. Yeah, that's, um, well, I mean, we have to make the connections for everything, right? Like we, we try to separate and um, what's, what's the word, but uh, segregate everything, you know, like this is the, this is the water system as if it has no other connection to anything on the earth. Um, and that's one of the things we have to do is come back and remember that we're all, everything is connected. We are connected, um, of course. And like you said, water, water is the basis of life. So, um, yeah. And we're all part of really the same organism. You know, the story of separation that I am me and you are you and what we do has no bearing on one another is just a false narrative that we've been telling ourselves for a long time at this point. And so we really need to become aware that we are all interconnected. And, uh, you know, the for example, the clearing in the Amazon is creating more intense hurricanes in the southeastern U.S., and along the eastern shoreboard, because as you transition that environment from a healthy biotic pump, drawing water through the South American continent, now you're clearing it, you're creating those heat domes, you're pushing against that water, increasing the strength of those storm cells, creating more hurricanes in the southeastern US, but you're also reducing the precipitation that people in Patagonia receive, because that's also driven by this biotic pump. So similarly, California has destroyed the precipitation cycles through the American West. It has broken the conveyor belt that brings moisture in through land. And so through, you know, the, the colonization, the destruction of the ecosystems in California, the mass building of all of these concrete metropolises, we've actually impacted all of the Mountain West in terms of their precipitation cycles as well. Yeah. 
Well, so since you brought that up, I was going to wait a little bit, but since you brought up California, um, how about uh, privatization of water? You want to say um, anything about that? Yeah, this is something that I believe is criminal and should be prosecuted as criminal. Uh, you know, in a water abundant world, water has nearly no value. In a water scarce world, water is incredibly profitable. And so when you have these systems come in place that privatize water, you're incentivizing scarcity. You're putting these wanker bankers in charge of this vital resource of life on land, and they're managing it to make money, not for ecosystem health. And the way to make money with water is have a really water scarce world. So you look at a situation like 2020 in Australia, where you had indigenous communities that hadn't had their rivers flow for three years. They've been paying to truck in water. And you at the same time had the people who owned the water wasting it to artificially increase the prices even higher. And so if we move forward with this global privatization of water, it's really going to destroy the life support systems of our planet. We really need to understand that water is this common good. It's a sacred good. And it's not just for humans, it's for all life. Um, and so I really view this privatization of water and trading of water futures is one of the very scariest things that's happening in these modern times. Thanks, Zach. Um, so one of the other passions that you have is uh, about the water stories. So why is this, why are water stories important? You know, there's so many incredible examples around the world of people being the change, of people turning deserts into paradise, of people reviving rivers, of people making these oases of abundance and life, but no one knows about these stories. You have to dig and search and, you know, I've spent much of the last four years hounding down these stories, finding these people, but you don't see them in the news. You don't see them in the mainstream media and you mostly can't even find them when you're looking for them. So what we're trying to do is package these stories in a digestible package that's fun to watch, that's entertaining so that these stories become part of our mythology, part of our human mythology. You think we very clearly know that humans can destroy. We see it every day. And a lot of the environmental movements still center around a paradigm that humans destroy environments. So if you want to protect environments, keep the humans out of there. But that's just part of the story. And if we're only focused on reducing our negative impact, we're never going to have a positive impact. So I try and have the biggest environmental footprint possible because I know that my footprint can be positive. Yes, maybe I'm doing some things that are negative, but I can more than offset those when I'm working with water, when I'm working for life. And so it's really important for us to take on this new mythology, to have it be part of our human story, that humans have this potential to revive landscapes, to work with nature, to bring it to something more approaching what it was, or maybe even better than it ever was before, more abundant, more stable, more productive. And so with Water Stories, we really want to train people to be doing what I do. Uh, you know, I travel around helping people implement decentralized water retention, help people restore their local water cycle, restore their landscape. But I could spend the rest of my life doing this and have you know, a, a totally insignificant impact. 
And it was actually Sepp who one time we were talking and he said, you know, you're all well and good, but we need thousands of people like you. Millions would be better. And so that's what we're trying to do with Water Stories. We find in addition to clients, the second most common thing that we hear is how do I learn what you do? How do I begin doing what you do? We have all these young people that are going to environmental science or sustainable agriculture, and they're mostly learning the same mechanized, engineered, agrochemical program. Even the universities that teach sustainable agriculture, they're basically teaching the same cropping systems with the same chemicals. Maybe they have organic certification chemicals instead of the other ones, but they're still destructive to the life support systems on our planet. So what we're trying to do with Water Stories is build awareness of this, build a community movement to change some policy, to change some legal impediments that are in the way of doing this work, and also to train up a whole generation of water restoration practitioners that can be helping people restore the health of their landscape. Lovely. Um, So at one, we do something similar. We're not as water focused, but we also part of our mission here is to gather all the incredible people who are doing work for the earth. You know, so um, when we started, I'm sure you felt this at some point too. You just feel so overwhelmed and lonely in this that you know because we because we hear all the destruction stories and we're like, oh, it's all us. It's all our responsibility. And so that was one of the things we wanted to do was to gather, which is why we have these teleseminars. Gather incredible people like you who are doing this work in the world to say like, hey, it's not just you. And um, and here are other ways in which we can engage and so find your path. Um, so I. I thank you because I think it's so important to have those stories out there because, um, yeah, I think, like I said earlier, when we think about um, desert, we get so hopeless. Or when I think about um, the, we get inundated by rain where I live. So, you know, when I think of all the flooding, it just feels so overwhelming. So thank you for sharing those stories. Yeah, absolutely. The stories and, the, and thank you guys as well for what you're doing. It's all part of the same movement. I think the shared stories are really important and also the connections between people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we humans by nature are social beings, social critters. And so if we're only working in our own silo, it's hard to keep going. Typically people lose momentum, lose interest. So that's the other thing we're trying to do with Water Stories is really create a community of support, a community of engagement where we can all help one another learn from each other's projects, where hopefully eventually we have community water councils around the world where local communities are coming together and organizing, saying, here are our concerns around water. Here are the things we can do. Here are the resources that we have. And then acting collectively to improve their local environment. And I think those connections between people are so important in terms of building a decentralized movement. Uh, Because if this is the kind of movement with the figurehead that you can just kill off that one person and the movement dies, it becomes very easy for the water privatizers of the world to stop the movement. Whereas if it's this decentralized movement of citizens around the world standing together, then we can actually overcome some of these corporate interests that are in the way. I When you were talking, I got this beautiful image of these water councils, which we have something similar here, but not the way that I envisioned it. So I could just see it in motion of, and I think the big thing there is the collective and that, you know, we're collectively working for the benefit of all. Um, so 
it's lovely. It's a lovely like vision. Um, so what are there simple actions that we could do as individuals to help to enhance the water cycle? Yeah, there are so many simple actions that we can take. And I think the first thing, the place to start is go outside when it's raining watch what's happening to that rain. Is that rain being received by the earth? Is it being rejected by the earth? Where is the rain pooling? Where is it running? Where is it concentrating? And then you're going to very clearly see ways that you can help facilitate that land to receive the water. So a really simple thing we all can do is just try and offset our own water footprint. So if you think most of us live in a home that has a hard roof, most of us have a driveway or some pavement, all of that is desertifying the land. And so if we seek to have a neutral impact, we need to find ways to bring that water to places that can then infiltrate into the earth. So for example, if you have a house, you might have a rain garden, just a small little hole in the ground where your gutters feed the water into this rain garden. So that instead of just running down the street into the sewer drain and eventually the ocean causing problems all along the way, we can actually take that water and help that local land receive it. Now we're going to naturally have more humidity in the earth for vegetation to grow. We can also establish those vegetative systems. And so I've seen some lovely examples, even in small suburban yards, uh, one in Fullerton, California, that stands out where, you know, it's this concrete metropolis all around, but they found ways to take all of their roof water and sink it into the ground via these rain gardens, then establish vegetation that's growing off of the water that was planted beforehand in the earth. And now when they get these hot temperatures coming through Southern California, they have this immense buffering effect because all of their landscape is shaded. It's full of all these trees that are providing all of this cooling. And so when their neighbors are just sweating their heads off, they're much more comfortable because they've set their landscape up to receive the rain. And so we can also do things from an advocacy standpoint, you know, people who are, maybe you're in the high rise in a city. Now in cities, you have you know, an unfair access to the governance. All of the major governance is in cities. And we really need people to start being voices for the voiceless, to start speaking up for water, speaking up for these ecosystems. And so go to your local town hall and ask what impact that development or that new road is going to have on the water systems. And how can we start to offset that negative impact or even have a positive impact? Um, and then when we're on a bigger landscape, there's just a wealth of options we can do. We can find these acupuncture points within the landscape where water is gathering and find ways to hold it with earthen systems where we're creating water bodies that are providing this vital resource for the whole ecosystem. And we're also infiltrating that water into the ground. Um, so I think the, the big key takeaways as far as action points, one is advocacy is huge. Talk about this story with your friends, with your relatives, with your community, because most people don't even know that there's this huge potential world of working with water and talk about it from a policy standpoint. Go to your local town halls and meetings and really be that voice for the water in those public spaces. And then go outside when it's raining, watch what's happening and find ways to where the land is rejecting the rain 
find ways that you can set it up to receive that rain. Thank you. I love that receiving the rain. Um, so you've obviously spent quite a lot of time with water. Um, so what have you learned from your relationship with water? Oh man, how long do you have? <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's hard to even pick where to start with that one. Cause it can teach you so much. It can teach you so much about the health and vitality within your own body. Um, you know, we're, we're really, water is this ubiquitous liquid that's all around. That's just taken for granted everywhere. Yet we still don't understand so much of it. There are 72 anomalies of water that our current best scientific understanding of water has no explanation for zero ways that we can clearly observe that water behaves yet we have no explanation for. And I think Gerald Pollack's work with the fourth phase of water is really starting to illuminate some of these things. Um, water really has this liquid crystalline structure in certain phases. And then it also has this incredible electrical potential that we're finding out may actually be the energy source behind photosynthesis may actually be the energy source behind our own bodies. And so when we start to have really healthy water, we start to have really vital organisms, whether they're human or non-human organisms. And by the same light, when we have unstructured, disturbed, distorted water, we start to have all of this illness through all these different systems, whether ecological or human oriented. Uh, and so it really, you know, water also will teach you everything that you do wrong. Every, you know, in working with water, I love it because it provides us immediate feedback. If, you know, the, if the water body wasn't built correctly, water will show you exactly where it wasn't built correctly, very clearly. If the spillway wasn't done in the right way, water is going to erode and move around it and show you those mistakes as well. So it's a really great teacher. Um, and then we also can see just in the different states that water has, it, you know, it can be in this very destructive mainline straightened state where it's grabbing erosion, it's grabbing sediment, it's depositing those in waterways, creating eutrophication and algal blooms and all of these issues. Or it can have its natural flow state where it's meandering back and forth through sinuous environments, where it's picking up structure, it's picking up energy and charge. And it's also depositing all of that along its way. Um, he has so many pieces that water teaches us. It really, I think, is the ultimate guide and mentor that we can have uh, in that, you know, we are water living in a way. Um, there's a, a wonderful quote that is, life is solids, or sorry, life is water dancing to the tune of solids. And, you know, in our modern biochemical understanding, we really look at water as this background carrier liquid when now we're understanding that water is actually the main piece and how it's engaging with ourselves, how it's engaging with proteins and things of that nature is what's actually giving us energy, allowing our muscles to move. Um, yeah, there's, there's so much we can really learn from water. <laughs> Thank you. I like um, 
I appreciate you sharing that. It's you definitely light up when you're talking about water in that way. And so it's clear that um, water has also informed you and your work. And um, I appreciate that. Um, And thinking about the sinuous shapes, uh, it just reminds me of how much uh, of humans we just take for granted. We, you know, so we talked earlier about Sepp's quote of um, wanting to um, revitalize landscapes. And I think in the past, uh, we've just wanted to control it, which is something you said earlier too, that was like a little flag that went off, like we have to let go of that control. Um, but I know around where we are, so many places have gotten rid of the sinuous of the, of the river thinking that it doesn't serve a purpose. Like, let's just get it straight so we can control it and manage it. But clearly it does. It has huge impacts. And, you know, that's really what's creating flood. That's really what's creating drought. When you drain the water away, it's the natural consequence. So people can sometimes struggle to understand how can we have drought and flood all together? Isn't one too much water and too little water? But those are actually two sides of the very same coin. When you mainline water, when you get rid of it, when you put it into this straight erosive habit, that's the natural consequence. Um, and so to me, it's no wonder that we have these huge mega fires, which in my opinion, have absolutely zero to do with carbon driven climate change. Um, they're certainly contributing to it, you know, in one fire season. Now we're emitting more carbon than all of the automobile industry together forever. Um, but again, that's a water stress. We've desertified, desiccated these landscapes to the point where instead of all of that leaf litter and tinder and carbon being broken down by fungi and forming soil, it's now just desiccating. It's drying out and it's forming these fuel loads, which then create these mega fires. Um, Yeah. So it's when we put water in that way, you know, we're slowly draining the life off of our landscape. We're just constantly decreasing the quality and quantity that it can support on land by this, you know, desire to control the water to, you know, one of the things that I think illustrates this very cleanly is that we've disconnected waters from their floodplains. Now, what happens with water and its floodplain? Well, it's coming through in these seasonal surges, it's carrying all of this nutrient, sediment, leaves, organic matter, and it's depositing those in the floodplains. That's what's built up these beautiful, rich, dark soils in the floodplains. But now we've built in the floodplains, we've developed the floodplains, we've turned them into agriculture, so we don't want them to flood anymore. So we dredge the waterway we make it flow at a lower base. And now we're actually lowering the water table level in the whole landscape because water is so humble. It's always looking for the lowest path out. And so when we do that dredging of waterways, when we then make levees where the water can no longer connect to its floodplain, for one, we get these massive flooding events when the water is surging, but we're also now destroying this conveyor belt of fertility and you know, water is so easy to take for granted. Water literally gives us everything. It gives us our bodies. It gives us our health. It gives us our food, our habitat. But what do we do for water? Very rarely do people actively do anything for water. And so I think it's really important that we start taking it less for granted and taking 
simple, actionable steps that we can do to give back to water. It's giving us literally everything. So what can we start to give back to water? I love that. And also um, that water is so humble. Um, so I'd like to open it up. If anybody has any questions, please feel free to raise your hand or put something in the chat box and we'll get to you. Um, but in the meantime, I want to say that that um, process that you just described about dredging out and the water table going on your water story, I believe it's on water stories. You have a video that really shows that. So for anybody who's a visual learner, I encourage you to look for that. Um, Anyone have any questions for Zach? All right. Well, then we'll just keep, I'll keep asking you unless somebody um, wants to chant. Oh, Pam, I was wondering. <laughs> I think you can, oops, I just muted you again. Sorry. Okay. Um, uh, Zach, thank you so much for, talking to us about water it's um i listen to you talk and i i get so angry <laughs> i'm trying i'm trying to sit here going you know like breathing deep and all that but it's like it's so i mean isn't this obvious like what we need to be doing to change this whole situation with water i mean i i i, I just kind of the whole privatization thing i just am like oh come on <laughs> you know i mean it makes me want to like you know, become a serious activist, like all over again. Um, not that I'm not in my own way, but, you know, uh, you know, I'm not. Anyway, I, I'm just, um, I feel like we have to do more. And I, I just, I don't know. What more can we do besides, you know, storming the banks and taking them out and stringing them up? I, I know. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Wipe that away. <laughs> I don't disagree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just feel like, you know, there's, I mean, we need to like get it together. We got to need to get it together quickly. I absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, it was really from feeling that very same frustration that I started Water Stories. Because not only that, but when you look around the world and especially in the U.S. and the European Union, a lot of these practices to restore water on the landscape are illegal. So not only are people not doing them, but we're actually forced to break the law in order to do them. Um, and so this is just asinine. It's from the way that these environmental laws were written, they didn't allow for regeneration. So for example, unless if you have a lot of money and can pay for it, you can't destroy a wetland, but you also can't enhance a wetland. And so in many places, we're inheriting these incredibly disturbed, degraded wetlands, but we can't restore them because the way the laws were written, it's a totally hands-off approach. Once it's waters of the U.S., don't touch it. You're not allowed. Um, so from constantly coming up against these legal challenges and hurdles and policy, it really led me to realize we need a decentralized community movement to change these. We need our own shock doctrine so that when the next fire or the next flood rolls through, we can say, here's the policy that we need to implement to prevent the next one of these from happening. Um, and I think, you know, because it's so simple, people really get grabbed by it. And I'll say either side of the spectrum, you can be 
you know, a totally conservative businessman or bleeding heart liberal. And people totally understand this. They totally get in line with it. And so I view it also as this immense bridge issue. When you look at climate change, you basically have one side saying it's super important. We need to act now or we're all going to die. And the other side saying uh, it's all a farce. It doesn't exist. But everyone wants clean water for their kids. Everyone wants a healthy landscape. And it's so simple that everyone can understand it. Um, so I think the biggest thing we all can do is share these stories, share the story of water with our community, because it's so interesting and so easy to understand that people get grabbed by it and they understand it very quickly. And so I think we just need to get the story out to more people. And then there's going to be this immense groundswell of interest in creating these changes. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Um, you know, and it's, it's kind of, for those of us who live in the Northeast, it's like, you know, it's been raining now for so many days. I'm kind of like, Oh gosh, when's the rain going to stop? You know, but so it's, I, I think it's hard. It's like out of sight, out of mind. It's like, you know, we don't have wildfires. We don't have drought, really. I mean, you know, if it, if it, if it's hot for like two weeks, everybody's like, oh my God, we're having a drought. And people from California come here and go like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so it's, I think that for those of us who live in these really wet areas, uh, it's, you know, but, but listening to you talk is like, makes me, I mean, I know all this, but but I think my focus goes in other directions just because I'm like, water, what's the problem? I know there's a problem. But so anyway, I'm just wondering how those of us who live in these really wet areas, I mean, I, anyway, I just want to kind of reframe how I'm thinking about it. I That's, you know, I guess I'm just talking to myself right now about like, how can I reframe my attitude about water um, because I live in an area where it's not a problem. It's not, and yet it is. So it's like, hmm, how do I, how do I wrap my head around that? That living in the area that I live in, and maybe it's that, you know, with, with the imbalance of everything, it's only going to get wetter and wetter and wetter and wetter here which then becomes, then it becomes a real problem. So I guess that's what I need to do. I need to reframe it somehow for myself so that, so that I can see that, oh, I know, I know it's spring. I know it rains in the spring. It's all good. But there comes a point where you're like, all right, this is enough. And so I just, anyway, do you have any thoughts for me about how to like wrap my head around it a little bit better so that I can tell stories about where I live and my water and have it be part of the solution. Yeah, absolutely. And you're raising a really great point and it can be a little bit of a paradox, but water retention also helps in places with too much water because you're adding shock absorbers to the system. So, uh, you know, along the Eastern shoreboard, we're seeing bigger and bigger storms. We're seeing these immense destruction events. Um, but then I think of, uh, places that my friends have that, you know, during Hurricane Katrina, they barely had water flowing off of their property. And it just absorbed that whole huge storm, allowed it to infiltrate into the earth over time. And so they weren't contributing to all of the horrific flooding that was happening all throughout Vermont. And if everyone had done what they had done, that flood wouldn't have been nearly as destructive. Um, so 
yeah, even in these places with too much water and that may be increasingly bigger and bigger storms that are more destructive, this water retention, it creates these shock absorbers that, you know, allow the force of those storms to dissipate throughout the environment rather than concentrate in certain places causing the destruction. Okay. Good. Thank you. Thanks, Pam. Thanks, Zach. Um, Christina, we'll get to you in just a second. But I want to say one other thing about Pam is that where she lives, actually, you can drink the water from the stream. I mean, it's she lives in a very, it's called Sweetwater Sanctuary <laughs> um, because it's very special water. Um, and, and also, uh, one of the things I've learned from Pam was years ago, she was doing work with the um, Hudson River. And so I think of that and I, and I'm bringing it up now with this water because, you know, the Hudson was really polluted. Um, and where I live, I'm in the um, Susquehanna river Valley. So we have the Chesapeake Bay. That's also quite polluted from all the farmland around us. And we have this tendency when water is polluted or land is polluted of wanting to stay back. Like we don't want to go there because um, it's not healthy. And, um, and so Pam has done some work around shifting that as well and just reminding us that that's the area that we actually need to go to. Um, so I don't know, Zach, if you want to say anything. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just such a great and powerful point. When you think when Columbus arrived in the Americas, you could drink from any body of water, any lake, any river, any stream, any creek. It was all clear, clean, drinkable water. Now, you know, you look in some places and, you know, in Minnesota, the land of lakes, they found that no lake met the state's quality standards for fishable or swimmable. So we've gone from drinkable water everywhere to water that you shouldn't even enter into to swim and you shouldn't eat any of the fish growing in the bad environment. And it's one thing for us who, you know, we can bring in bottled water from somewhere else. The fish has to live with our toxicity. The earthworm has to live with our toxicity. And so these decentralized water systems also are the best form of naturally processing those contaminants. Uh, and so wetlands do a great job of processing contaminants out of the environment. And so even if you don't have a problem with water of too much or too little, if you have a problem of too polluted, decentralized water retention can also help solve that. Um, now, again, you need to stop the pollution. You need to shut off the, the tap where it's starting. But as far as filtering and cleaning our existing environments, it provides one of the very best pathways. Thanks, Zach. Christina, you have a question? Oh, let me um, put you on mute. Maybe. <laughs> There, I got it. <laughs> Just quickly, in terms of um, one's own property, and in this case, I'm living on literally on a mountain cliff that goes down to a lake. I'm fascinated with the whole idea of acupuncture points. And is that something that um, we can listen to and tune into on our smaller properties in a, in, a, in a way where I know that a couple neighbors would be really interested in that also. And so therefore it would be a slightly bigger piece of land that we would be um, tuning into that or. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the water will really show you where it's moving, where it's flowing. And what we're always trying to find is the place where we can have the smallest intervention for the maximum benefit for that landscape. And so another important piece of this is to open up your perspective, which I can hear you're already doing to a watershed level perspective. You know, you're not necessarily going to have an acupuncture point on your specific small piece of ground, but when you look at where you lie within the greater watershed, you now begin to understand what you could do. So maybe you're up in the highlands and you really don't have a suitable place to build water retention, but you might be best off really focusing on the vegetative systems, the health mm -hmm. of the forest, the health of the soil, because you're the top of that sponge infiltrating the water and letting it trickle down through the system. Whereas maybe if you're in, you know, more of the headlands of the drainage and these seasonal water flows, now you're in the places to build these water bodies that allow those veins of the earth to be recharged with water, recharging old spring lines, old water flows. Um, so a big piece of it is opening up your perspective to the watershed scale perspective, understanding where you fit within your watershed and basing your actions off of that, where, where you fit into the bigger puzzle. Thank you. Thanks, Christina. Thanks, Zach. So we have a bunch of questions in the chat, um, and many of them are actually focused around dealing with municipalities. Um, and are there templates out there for to guide with to guide us in interfacing with them? That's one of the things we're trying to develop with Water Stories is a conversation around policy. Um, I think there are some examples of things that can be done and ways to interact. Um, but we're not so far as a template yet. And the other piece is that things are so site-specific and contextually specific that you can't really boil it down to a recipe book, um, aside from first learning from the community, hearing from that community what their issues are, what their challenges are. So one of the best uh, examples of this is the work in India, where really the way that they created this huge movement reviving seven rivers was through these community water councils where they brought one person from every family together into this council to discuss what was going on, what resources they had. And then through some facilitation, they were able to find solutions that they could actually implement. Um, so that's a really great example. I think Oftentimes, you need to be aligned as a community before you approach the municipality. Um, it doesn't hurt to approach them early on, but they're going to listen a lot more if you have the whole community backing you. Um, and then similarly, you know, we have great examples of this happening on a suburban or even urban scale. You look at Fullerton, California in Orange County. Every bit of water that enters their storm drains gets infiltrated into the earth. Every, most other cities that just enters the sewer drains causes all sorts of issues and then also flushes out into the sea. But there in the 70s, because they viewed water as such an issue, they found ways to infiltrate that water that was moving through those storm systems. Um, so that's another really great model that can be replicated. Um, but it's, you know, I think we're just in the fledgling stage of this in the sense of 
we don't have a good guidebook. We don't have a good template. There's not a lot of successful examples of working with the municipalities. I think generally it's much more, it's an easier pathway to work on the community scale, on the private land-based scale. And then oftentimes the municipalities come around after the fact. Thank you. Um, any final words? It's been, this has been really wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been wonderful to be here. Um, just awesome to speak with all of you who are so interested in the health of our planet. I think the final words would be to just spend the time to learn from your environment. If you're learning from your environment in a book or on the computer you're only getting such a tiny little piece of the information. Uh, whereas when we spend time out on the landscape, there's smells, there's sights, there's things that we hear, there's all these different visual cues. And so we can really learn so much more, so much more quickly. Um, and so, you know, find time each day to seek out a local water source, whether it's a waterway or the rain that's happening that day, and try and spend time to figure out what's happening. How does that water feel? How do those organisms feel? And that's going to be your best guide in terms of guiding your actions is through this observation of the living environment. You know, you look at someone like Sep, he learned everything from reading the book of nature. And that book of nature is something that as humans, we're all hardwired to read, but a lot of times we've lost that ability or we haven't lost it. We just haven't cultivated it. And so it lies dormant within us. And I think that's the biggest piece of all of this work is to spend the time outside observing with a clear, calm, quiet mind to let the landscape inform us. Thank you, Zach. Um, there are a number of people that I could see still have more questions and are just inspired by today's talk. So I really encourage you all to, um, to go to waterstories.com where you can connect with Zach and learn more about the work that they're doing. And I'd also like to invite all of you to join us for a very special event, the Global Women Working for the Earth Summit, Restoring Our Relationship with Nature which one is hosting and it's April 21st to 24th. The summit highlights the incredible work of over 30 women leaders around our world who are dedicated to working with and for the earth. Our keynotes are Winona LaDuke, Terry Tempest Williams, Rosemary Gladstar, Leah Penniman and Linda Black Elk, all women who um, are enormous mentors of mine and just I um, so appreciate their work. Um, the summit is free and open to all, and you can learn more about it at our website, natureevolutionaries.com, or the summit site, womenworkingfortheearth.com. In addition to those incredible keynotes, there's we have Mona Palaka, who's one of the 13 Indigenous grandmothers, and Rowan White, who's an Indigenous um, seed keeper, uh, Lil Milagro Enriquez, who runs the Mycelium Youth Network, and um, Hawaiian aunties. Manalani Aluli Meyer and Luana Palapala Busby Neff, who have been um, really uh, part of the work with Mauna Kea and protecting the Hawaiian Islands. 
and um, the incredible spiritual leader of Yay Yay Louisa Tesh. And I can keep going. These are amazing women. You want to join us again? It's April twenty first to twenty fourth. Um, and so while you're at our website, I will again ask you to please press that donate button for your donations help to continue our work, help bring these teleseminars, webinars forward, and create um, educational opportunities in listening to and building relationships with the living earth. So thank you for joining us. And um, until next time, I too encourage you to go out and listen to that book of nature. Thanks, everyone.